Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Opera After Dark. Scribion, scree, scriabin, scrib, scribin. Scriabin is actually correct. Correct. So you. (laughs) (laughs) So I got there. You got there, but you weren't supposed to get there, so you fucked it up. Is what I'm saying. Ah. Well, shucks. Well, when you're a couple of very large glasses of wine deep. That's true. I mean, you can only do the best you can. I can only be responsible for so much is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) That was too much responsibility for you? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) If only I could express how I feel. Well, all right. Well, today we are going to be talking about uh, the composer Alexander Scriabin. Yes, and actually, just because we haven't declared it for a while, uh, people should know that this is Opera After Dark, which is a podcast that delves into the wild and crazy and sometimes super weird sides of music history. Not just opera, classical music in general. Often wacky, weird world people that write and perform this music are often pretty strange right just as strange as the stories themselves i wish that there was a study into this as to why people that compose opera are so effing weird i couldn't tell you man i mean like it's a pretty like think about it to us it's pretty normal because we're in this industry and we're like super classical music nerds here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but like for the average person, is it not completely strange to have a theatrical form that is sung throughout and the stories are just, like, so wild and ridiculous? Like, you know, there's a suspension of disbelief. You have to, like, roll with it sometimes. So what you're saying is that people that compose opera have a certain amount of suspension of disbelief in their day-to-day lives. Perhaps. <laughs> But also, I think that they're just, you have to be pretty creative. Hey. Pretty creative. Hey. Sorry. That was me. <laughs> I hit a pole. You have to have like a poetic, creative, kind of wild abandon, I think, to buy into the whole art form a little bit because it's a little nuts. Like that doesn't happen in real life. Nobody sings their life. Is that how so, is that how you would describe yourself, Naomi? Wild abandon. Wild no. Canadian abandon. <laughs> <laughs> when Which you say is, that, I like picture myself dressed in plaid, swinging an axe in the forest. Like I was, I yeah. picture Anne of Green Gables. Oh, I was gonna say that wild Canadian sense. abandon is when you bump into somebody on the street and you don't say sorry. Sorry. <laughs> That's, I say that all the time. If anyone bumps into me, I apologize. It's right. a Canadian thing. Super nice. I'm Canadian. so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> anyway. I'm very sorry. Anyway. Elspeth, Elspeth, I'm sorry for interrupting. That's okay. Um, today we're going to talk about the composer Alexander Scriabin. Um, and I'm just going to jump right in and tell you how he died because I've been sitting <laughs> on this for a while and I just want to talk about it with people. Are you guys ready for this well first tell us what year was he born what year did he die he was born in 1871 and he died in 1915 so he was 43 when he died oh for some reason Uh, i was thinking he was going to be way earlier no 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 no. um he was russian obviously with a name like that but 
Is that you guys, obvious? Yes, it is. Um, you guys, you guys. <laughs> guess, guess how he died. You won't, but guess. He was decapitated. No. I'm going to say he, de- he like tried to sever one of his own limbs. Why would somebody do that? Well, you said it was super weird, so. It is super weird. He... No, no, no. Oh, you're going to tell us. No, you have a guess. I'd love to hear it. Uh, I was really just spitballing. Um, he refused to eat food and starved to death. No. So he died of blood poisoning. <gasps> and what happened was... From um, what? From a pimple <laughs> on his... <laughs> on his <laughs> Stop. From a pimple on his upper lip. That became septic. They think oh what happened was gosh. he was shaving and he scraped it and it became septic and he died of blood poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Which I mean, that's terrible. Acne but, kills, folks. Acne kills. Come on, people. I the first time I read that, I was like, oh no. That is ridiculous. It's amazing. It's amazing. My Wait, biggest what? mistake was trying to drink wine while listening to you. I know, you're like, spit half of it out. Just think of how dirty the shaving blade must have been to give him blood poisoning. I mean, again, this was like 1915, so... It could have just been like a rusty blade, right? Ooh! Yeah, yeah. That's all it takes, folks. That is gross. That's all it takes, folks. (laughs) I know, right? Everybody, check your shaving blades. Oh, Kyle. It's it's near right. it's near enough to Halloween. Happy Dia de los Muertos, everyone. Yay, thank the you. Day the day of the dead. Go. Dia de los Muertos, everyone. So <laughs> Scriabin, he obviously died in the most ridiculous way. Yes, he did. But he was also an incredibly weird guy. Did he, he live? Did he dude. live in the most ridiculous way? Kind uh, of. He was he was a weird he was a weird dude. So he was born in 1871. His um, family, he was born into nobility. Um, his mother died when he was one, so he was basically raised by his aunts um, and his cousins and things. And apparently... <laughs> cousins and was, things. And things. <laughs> apparently he had a really effeminate manner, which he blamed on being brought up surrounded by women. His father was in the military, so he was gone for mm. most of his upbringing, so he was raised solely by women. Um he was known as Sasha, and he was this extremely precocious little child, and he actually started building pianos when he was a little kid. He became really fascinated with the mechanisms inside pianos, so when he was a little kid, he um, actually started building them, and he would give them away um, to like guests that came to visit. He would build these pianos and give them to the guests that came nice. to visit. Nice. I want to get me I one of those how- pianos. Right. I wonder how good his pianos were. Were the guests like, oh my goodness. Like, I don't know, because like, <laughs> he was like a thank really you. little kid when this happened. He's like, oh, oh thanks, I'm so honey. happy to have this piano. Um, he's primarily known <laughs> as, a, a com- as a composer of piano music, but he actually did write an opera when he was eight that Dang. I'm sure was real, sh- like, real shitty. Um, he wrote an opera called Lisa, which he dedicated to his childhood sweetheart. Well, let's assume her name was Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this was a time period when he was 10, he was shipped off to um, military school. And from the ages of 10 to 18, he trained as a soldier. 
Um, and he ranked generally first in his class academically, but was exempt from drilling due to his physique. Um, he was like five feet tall. Oh. He was a tiny what? wee man. Um, so he was exempted from drilling due to his tiny little stature, and he was given time <laughs> each day while everyone else was drilling to practice the piano. Oh, that's nice. Oh. Yeah. So um, then he graduated from military school, and he began studies at the Moscow Conservatory, and he became a noted pianist despite his real tiny hands to go with his real <laughs> tiny body. Um, small apparently hands. he could only... Small hands. He smell like cabbage? <laughs> no. <laughs> Like a carny. <laughs> yes, I'm so glad that you get that reference. Just in case anybody uh, hasn't seen Austin Powers. Uh, so apparently his hands could only stretch to um, a ninth on the piano. Oh, That's geez. pretty good. Yeah, but in spite of that, he um, became a really prolific uh, pianist. And while he was at conservatory in Moscow, he actually injured his right hand practicing Franz Liszt's reminiscences of Don Juan. Oh, Liszt, um, you son of a bitch. Liszt, I know. Well, Big. Liszt had massive hands. Well, so. who was the one that also damaged his hand? Was it Brahms? That, no, that's Schumann. No. Put Schumann. it in the stretcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because of overpractice, he damaged his right hand, and he went to the doctor, and the doctor was like, no, I don't think so. This is never going to be mm. fixed or whatever. So he lived most of his life with his damaged right hand. That um, sucks. And because of that, he turned to composition. He was this piano major who was going to be a pianist or whatever. Um, so he turned to composition. And people say um, most of his piano music um, is really heavy on the left hand because he couldn't really play with his right one. So that's oh. um, a mm -hmm. sort of feature of Scriabin's music. Um, he actually turned to composition but didn't actually graduate with a composition degree because of strong personality differences in taste with his tutor, Anton Aronsanke. Apparently, he got his diploma and all of the teachers signed it except this one dude, and so he <gasps> couldn't graduate. Dude. I know. Seriously? He was a dick. What do you think he that... He was a dick. What, what do you think the extenuating circumstance was? I think they just hated each other. Sounds like I it. think it was a difference in opinion as to like what music is and all of that shit. What I if what if they had like a, a secret romance? Mm. I mean, I don't think that's what happened, but sure, let's say that's what happened. <laughs> he had a secret moments with this dude. I'm just trying to think theatrically, maybe okay? Maybe Scriabin like rejected him. Ooh. Maybe, but yeah. Scriabin's music, we can talk about it a little bit, but Scriabin's music is like I wouldn't say severely atonal, but pretty atonal. For the time, it was pretty out there. Yeah, no. he sort of, um, he was really popular in his time, but once he died, people kind of forgot that he existed, but mm -hmm. he was a really big influence of like Schoenberg and uh, Stravinsky mm -hmm. and people like that. I feel like he was a little bit ahead of his time. Like if yeah. he had lived for like 20 more years or so, he might have found his people, but mm -hmm. he never really found them in his lifetime. You lost me. You said atonal. I'm already, I'm out. <laughs> well, Naomi can describe this actually really well. Talk about the balloon. Oh, okay. So, like, the difference between <laughs> what tonal music and atonal music is. So, with tonal music, everything is, like, all the possible pitches are grouped into smaller groups that all work really well together with a home pitch as the center. And so, then, when you add notes to that group that are not part of the original group, those are called chromatic notes. And so if you think of like 
a key as being a balloon and then like you blow chromatic pitches into the balloon to add them into the mix and you keep blowing more and more chromatic pitches in eventually the balloon is going to burst because it can't really function or hold both all of the tonal and the chromatic pitches together and so it bursts and then atotalism just splatters everywhere (laughs) (laughs) isn't that a great way of describing it that is a great way of describing it is that from your lecture it is Is it's uh, from our lecture right i know that's i need to get the little tidbits that i can did naomi described 117 years of music history in like six minutes so it was pretty impressive dang is it recorded damn sure is hell yeah so um when he was 21, he graduated, well, he, like, graduated, graduated from conservatory. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he spent the next two years um, basically living it up and getting drunk and having sex with random women. Nice. Um, but when he was 23, I thought he there was his... I thought there was going to be a, a gay part of this story just no. because you included the effeminate part at the beginning. I think a lot of people assume that about him because of that, but we actually have no... I don't believe that he was. Fair yeah. Enough, he yeah. slept with a fair amount of women. No evidence to suggest that. I All the evidence suggests like very, the contrary. Right. He was pretty effeminate, really short, real short. Um, he had sort of this, um, apparently he was very arrogant and very bad-mannered. Mm. Um, the bad were, boy aesthetic. The bad boy aesthetic. The Napoleon complex, as huh. it were. Uh, at time, well, we'll get into that in a second. Um, so... Two years later, he was around 23, he gave his first piano concert performance in St. Petersburg. Uh, he had uh, financial assistance from a very wealthy sponsor. Ooh. And um, Do we know because who? of that. No. Um, I'll get to her in a second. Ooh, her. Um, oh. Her. All right. <laughs> so he gave his first concert performance in St. Petersburg, which launched him to his international career, giving successful performances in like Germany and Switzerland and France and Italy. Um, and this and is him a, playing the piano or his compositions? Playing the piano. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so then he married a woman named Vera Iskovich, who was also a pianist. Um, sometimes she performed with him, but apparently their personalities were very different, and there was a lot of conflict within the marriage. Yikes. Um, and they, she basically told him that he needs to like settle down, and so they moved back to Moscow, and he taught piano at the conservatory, but he was like a real shit teacher, um, and he was really critical of people like Beethoven and Brahms and Mendelssohn, and um, he decided after five years there to leave teaching and to also leave his wife and their four children. Oh, what a dick. Right? Yeah. And he went off on a European tour with a woman named Tatiana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a, wealthy, a wealthy patron. Are we assuming oh, things about ladies patron? named yeah, yeah. Tatiana? So yeah, he married her after Vera, like, very eventually gradu- granted him a divorce. Um, so he was married to Tatiana for the rest of his very short life. They had three kids. We had seven kids. Woo! All, 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 to- told, all together. Um, but to talk a little bit about the music that Scriabin wrote and then to talk about One Piece in particular which is like especially tied to his his weirdness right um so he there were he was sort of a mystic mm-hmm. he um at times he thought he was god 
Um, he was actually born on Christmas Day, which sort of reinforced this delusion that he was, um, you know, oh my god, the reincarnated body of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Um, and, in fact, one time he tried to walk on water on Lake Geneva um, and was re- rescued by a fisherman. Um, uh, obviously, he almost drowned. It just um, barely didn't work. Just by a little ba- bit. It just barely So, like, what does that mean? Work. Like, he walked on water for, like, all of five seconds and then fell in? Or, <laughs> you know? I guess. Let's say that he, like, rowed out to the middle of the lake and like got on the boat and stood up and was like i'm jesus christ and then put his foot down and just like went straight <laughs> so basically he jumped into the middle of lake geneva almost he jumped into the middle oh, of lake geneva what a doofus uh, so while he was at teaching at moscow conservatory he was composing a lot a lot of piano music um a couple of orchestral pieces, but uh, Scriabin was affected by this neurological phenomenon known as synesthesia. Kyle, do you know what that is? No, I'm not sure. Do you want to take a guess? Synesthesia. Nope, I don't. <laughs> okay. So synesthesia is this thing where your brain um, registers different sounds as colors and vice versa oh i have heard of that right it's not just it doesn't have to be just sounds it can Mm -hmm. also be letters and numbers it's like the wires get crossed in your brain in how your brain associates things with sound In a way, so that, I, I feel like that would kind of come in handy as a composer, right? Because people are always talking about it's different kind of colors. Like the super, and... Yeah, the superpower. There are a couple of composers who are known um, to have it. To have it, like Kaya Sariojo has it. Oh, she um, does. I didn't yeah, know that. she does have it. Um, my friend Andy Akiho has it. If anybody wants to check his music out, he's amazing. Um, he has a whole series of pieces that are named after different colors. Um there are several like pianists and just generally performers, professional performers that have it. Mm-hmm. I can't like think of names off the top of my head, but right. I know where I went to undergraduate, there was actually at one time there were three or four pianists in the performance program that all had it. And they got really excited when they realized that there was like this group of pianists that had it. And one of the faculty members like locked them in a room and was like, let's compare. Like, I'm going to play things. And, like, you all tell me the colors that you see. Right. So, so that, we is, actually have a, a mutual friend that has it. Is that mm-hmm. how it manifests? Is that you, so you hear something and you physically see a color? It's like, well, the way it's it been described. On the yeah, it's different for everybody, but the way it's been described to me is almost like you you see auras of colors in your mind, right? So like, yeah, either with sounds or sometimes you see letters and those letters correspond with specific colors. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, like I'm looking at your face and it looks flesh, like skin colored, and then I hear this music being played in a certain way, and then as I look at your face, I see it showing in a color other than I would see when there's no music being played. If if that's how it manifests. I don't know for don't sure. Know. If it's just something that like you can close your eyes and you see it in your mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or if it's actually colors the environment around you. I'm not 100% sure Interesting. how they would describe it. I don't know. But, uh... but I know that some people like 
they have really strong associations of colors with letters. So then when you say somebody's name, the combination of the letters in their name create like a wash of an aura mm -hmm. of wow. a certain color palette. So our mutual friend that has this has said that Elspeth's name is what, like the letters together create what aura? Or is it the sound of your voice? It's the sound of my voice. Oh, the sound of your oh. voice. is like dark red. Oh. Mm. oh, the sound of my voice. Oh. The sound of my voice. <laughs> yes. I'm speaking of voice, now am I saying the voice? Um, so anyway, Scrabbin had this <laughs> to bring us back on track. Yes. Um, and he actually developed something called the clavier aluminier, which means the keyboard with lights, for oh. a piece that he wrote called Prometheus, Poem of Fire, which was first performed in New York in 1915. And... Um, Owing to the difficult technical requirements, it's seldom performed with the color effects of the piano. It's usually performed with just like a straight up piano. Mm -hmm. But um, let's listen to a little bit of Prometheus right now. Yeah. Prometheus. I've been I've been told that sometimes people that have synesthesia, like for some people it's stronger than others. So for some people you can have it to like a debilitating degree where let's say that your name or your voice is the color red and then let's say that you wear like hot pink and this can be like it can be hard for a person with synesthesia to look at you because the color you're wearing is so strongly opposed to the color that you are in their mind mm -hmm. or like you're wearing bright orange right but your color is red so for some people they have a hard time so you you clash with whatever color you're wearing right so i had a friend in college who who has synesthesia and she told me that my the letters of my name if i remember correctly are like red and white and so because she has letter associations with colors so that when you say my name it like they mix together to create pink and so whenever i wore pink of any color she would often say oh, naomi i love your outfit but then over time she told me i'm not really sure why if it's that i really like the outfit or that the color is just matching like your color in mm -hmm. my mind 
right? That's interesting. So, I need to talk. It's really to, fascinating. I need to talk to somebody that has synesthesia to mm-hmm. figure out what my my color yeah. represents. Well, it's different for everybody. I'm yellow. Why is that bad? Yellow is my favorite color. You know what I just thought of? It's like nope. jaundice. Like Kyle, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dare you? Anyway, he's like. Anyway, can we have anyway? Can we have your mutual friend, are, your mutual friend on the podcast to talk about? She's already been on the. Podcast. She's already been on the podcast. Laura has synesthesia. Nope. Lauren. Lauren has synesthesia. Lauren, you're right. For our well, Star she, Wars episode. The episode we recorded will not be aired when we. Exactly. That's not until this. December. Yeah. Oh, jeez. So. We can ask her. We can ask her to come in and do a little mini bonus on synesthesia for us. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anywho. So back to Scriabin. Back to Scriabin. There's one piece in particular that I do want to talk about. Because <laughs> it's bonkers. It's bonkers. Um, so he started writing this in 1903, but left it incomplete when he died in 1915. This is a piece called The Mysterium. And he planned that the work would be synesthetic, exploiting the sense of smell and touch, as well as hearing. And he wrote that there will not be a single spectator. All will be participants. The work requires special people, special artists, and a completely new culture. The cast of performers includes an orchestra, a large mixed choir, an instrument with visual effects, dancers, a procession, incense, and rhythmic textual articulation. The cathedral in which it will take place will not be one of single type of stone, but will continually change with the atmosphere and motion of the Mysterium. This will be done with the aid of mists and lights, which will be modified, which will modify the architectural contours. So this is sort of Scriabin's idea of like a Gesamtkunstwerk, right? Right, so yeah. specific. So what he intended was that this piece was going to be performed in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains in India. Jeez. And it was going to take an entire week um and it was going to bring on it was going to announce basically the apocalypse or like usher in the apocalypse it was going to usher in the apocalypse and it was going to uh sort of usher in the idea of replacing the human race with like a set of nobler beings this guy sounds so, pretty full of himself yeah well he yeah he was um i mean he thought he was jesus right he thought he was have we forgotten about that time he tried to walk on lake geneva right you know i did forget but i'm glad that i'm reminded now exactly so this piece um was not finished by the time Mm -hmm. of his death he wrote 72 pages of the prelude and that's as far as he got (laughs) of a seven day piece of a seven day piece Um, that was going to usher in the apocalypse, but there is a recording of what he did write, so I think we should listen to it now. Obviously. Obviously.
I mean, thank God he didn't finish it, because then I, the apocalypse would have happened. We wouldn't be here, all of we that. We wouldn't be here. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And then he died from a pimple. <laughs> <laughs> That becomes, we forget. that becomes Jesus even funnier. Jesus was taken down. Right. I'm Jesus <laughs> and I died from a pimple. Gosh, what an idiot. The poor guy. So, I know, but like the Mysterium was this pretty amazing, crazy piece, and it has a place in popular culture. Oh, does um, it? Because of this? Because of how nuts he was? Because of how nuts he was, and because of the whole concept of like, this is the piece that if it's completed, it's going to bring upon but would the you, end of the world like, as we know it. If your yeah. average person heard it, would they recognize it? No. No. Okay, didn't think so. I no. wonder how many composers, though, have like toyed with the idea of finishing Scriabin's Mysterium. Oh, yeah. Um, there was a guy named Alexander Nemtin who spent 28 years... Um, sort of reforming the sketch 72 pages that existed and created this three-hour-long work what of it, which is what we have. Time. Indeed. I don't know. I don't know. What do you guys I mean, think, so as, as musicians, like... what do you think went about when a composer is so ridiculously specific about, like, including notations in the score, like so, being so specific it needs to be this exact dynamic or this exact type of voice or this exact type of setting what are your thoughts i mean as far as like this can only be performed at the base of the himalayan mountains and it's going to take a week and requires like 300 people my initial thought and my as a contemporary person is just like well this is never going to get performed again (laughs) right like as a if I was a composer, I would want to write pieces that could be performed multiple times because that is how I make money. But but I guess Scriabin's goal was not for it to be performed multiple times. That's true. Like you upon just need the one time. The right? one time upon first world premiere, it you only like need destroys one. the world as we know it. You only need one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. Guys, the wine. The wine. <laughs> Kyle right. is drinking an extremely full glass of wine mm-hmm. um i need it but on that note that was a very brief sort of summation of scriabin <laughs> and you know That's aka true. jesus <laughs> jesus composer with synesthesia with who synesthesia. wanted to usher in the apocalypse with Yay. his piece at the base of the himalayas who died because of his it scriabin what a freaking weirdo um, <laughs> now now does he have anything else that's like totally normal that we could listen to, like even as a play out? Yeah, he's got some. Yeah, he's got some more conventional yeah, sounding yeah. pieces. We'll Do play you, out some piano snot or something. Would you hear his stuff played on a random basis? Not really, you, I mean, like he was probably really... only in like piano performer albums. You know, right. yeah, like, he was amazingly influential and important in his lifetime but after he died that Mm. was that was sort of it i mean this is around the time his piano teacher when he was growing up was also the piano teacher of like rachmaninoff you know um so he was hugely influential but again after he died he sort of just yeah fell off the the face of the earth and his music although is really interesting and a little ahead of his time I don't think there is anything that he wrote that's like Rachmaninoff that just like mm-hmm. sticks with you 
as a listener or like I don't know, Mysterium's pretty weird. Mysterium's pretty weird. And he like it's very virtuosic music and like you said, a lot of it does feature the left hand really heavily, which is something that musicologists get really interested in because the whole idea of like music and disability and how the physical body affects how you perform mm-hmm. is really interesting to research and he's a good case study for that. But it's not the kind of thing where you see Scriabin piano music on like every yeah, playbill at Carnegie Hall or something like that. It doesn't bring in the audience. Interesting. No. So in this so in this scenario, when we're comparing Scriabin and Rachmaninoff, apparently size Rachmaninoff had huge hands. I was gonna say size matters huge. in this scenario. It does. Huge hands. Yeah. Right. That's like Rachmaninoff. Or little Scriabin. Rachmanin- Scriabin was shorter than Mozart. <laughs> Mozart was 5'2", I think, or 5'1". Shorter than both of us. Yeah. Jeez. He's a wee man. Rachmaninoff is known as having like the most massive hands of basically any... He was also a giant. Right, yeah. right. I think he's one of the tallest like composers six, in history. Seven something, something like, like that. that. And what was his hand span? Like a fort. A 14th or something, or... like massive. That's huge. Yeah. Huge. That is There's a great, huge. There's it's... a great comedy skit. Look it up on YouTube. It's called It Gutes Man and You. And they do this great skit about how Rachmaninoff had gigantic hands. And so in order for the average pianist to play his music, you need to like build a contraption to reach the span that Rachmaninoff could hit. It's very funny. You should all look it up. Check <laughs> it out. <laughs> How did you come across that, Naomi? I love that about you, that you just like, you have this wealth of random, <laughs> random classical, classical music, music knowledge. Nerdery. That's because I've spent the majority of my life around people who nerd out hard to classical music things. Excellent. I actually saw a Gudisman and you live in New York, and it was the greatest thing that I ever saw. So, Very <laughs> there nice. you go. All right. Yeah. Well, that's what we have on Scriabin. Scribanino. Scriabin. Alexander. Alex Scriabin. Alex, is it with a K? No, with an X. Oh. <laughs> Alex. <laughs> Alexander. Yeah. <laughs> also known as. Sasha, also known as Sasha, Sasha as a youngster. Scriabin. Why are your hands so fucking small? So tiny, <laughs> but proportional to your body. <laughs> okay, I'm Elspeth. I'm done. I'm Naomi, and I'm done. (laughs) I'm Kyle, and I could go all night long. (laughs) And this has been another episode of Opera After Dark. If you want more, because I know you do. How could you possibly, but okay. Make sure you find us on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and also at operaafterdark.com. Bye. Yep. Bye. Bye.
I don't know anything about Scrabian. Scrabian. You haven't even pronounced his fucking name. I don't know. I clearly don't know anything about <laughs> Scribano. I mean, okay, that, that's that's the sound effect right there. I don't know anything about Scribian. Mm-hmm. <laughs>